Welcome to Haunted Crimes Podcast, where we will explore stories around the world and the internet about true crimes and its haunting effect. Join us wherever you listen to your podcast. And now, here's your episode. Some deaths stick with us. Some lives are extinguished in such strange and horrifying ways that they haunt us for years. They become those famous murders that dominate headlines and airwaves around the world and haunt our collective dreams. From the Black Dahlia to Lizzie Borden to the Manson family, the stories behind these famous murders remain haunting to this day. Join us. It's not just the deaths themselves that makes these famous murders so chilling. Millions of lives end every day without a single peep on the news. But in a handful of cases, there's something else that hits us on a deeper, more primal level, something that feeds into our darkest fears. After 60 years, we're still no closer to solving the mystery of the boy in the box. It started on a chilly February day in 1957, on a roadside highway just outside of Philadelphia. A young muskrat hunter, checking his traps, stumbled upon a cardboard box lying in the woods. Inside was the dead body of a young boy, stripped naked and mutilated. The muskrat hunter didn't tell a soul. He was terrified that, if he reported it, the police would come down on him for his illegal traps. And so, for days, until a braver soul found him, the boy's body lay cold and rotting, alone in the woods. The boy was somewhere been three and seven years old, and he had undergone terrible neglect. He was small, malnourished and unkempt. His hair had been cut around the time of his death, clumps of it still clung to his body. The body itself was covered in small scars, most notably on his ankle, groin, and chin. Only one small act of care had been given to the boy abandoned naked in that box. Whoever had killed him had wrapped up tightly in a blanket, before leaving him to rot. It was the only hint of love he'd been shown. The police fingerprinted the boy in hopes of finding a match, but nothing came up. Hundreds of thousands of flyers were sent out to the surrounding area, begging for information about the unidentified boy, but no one came forward. His parents never claimed him as their own. The investigators tried everything they could. They analyzed the evidence from the crime scene, from the cardboard box to the blanket he was wrapped in. Every clue they followed, though, just led to a new dead end. To this day, more than 60 years later, one of America's most famous murders remains unsolved. Nobody knows who the child was, who his parents were, or how he ended up naked and mutilated in a box in the woods. Tragically, after all these years, the world will probably never even learn the name of America's unknown child. The Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short, was an aspiring actress who wanted to be famous more than anything else in the world. She never could have imagined, though, how she would earn it as the victim of a brutal murder that has haunted America for decades. On January 15, 1947, a young woman and her three-year-old daughter stumbled upon the body of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. She was horribly mutilated, lying in the grass of a Los Angeles residential neighborhood, her body completely chopped in half. The two pieces of her body were about a foot apart. Her intestines had been removed, folded up and then shoved back into her gut. There were ligature marks on her wrists, pieces of her skin had been removed, and her body had been completely drained of blood. Perhaps the worst part, though, was her face. The killer had cut it open from the corners of both sides of her mouth to her ears, permanently etching a Joker-like smile on the young woman's face. One week later, an editor at the Los Angeles Examiner received a call from someone claiming to be the murderer. He'd kept souvenirs, he said, and he'd be sending them over in the mail. 
He made good on his promise. Four days later, a postal worker pulled out a letter addressed to the examiner. Inside was Elizabeth Short's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, and her address book. But like so many other famous murders, this one's ensuing chaotic media circus only obscured the investigation. The police were overrun with too many tips to filter out the truth from the lies. They interviewed 12 possible suspects and listened to more than 60 people who tried to insist they were the killers, but they never managed to make a single arrest. The deaths of Andrew and Abby Borden are arguably two of the most famous murders in all of American history. August 4, 1892, started off like any other day for the Borden family. Andrew started the morning by going into town to deal with some business, leaving his daughter Lizzie, a 32-year-old Sunday school teacher, at home with his wife, Abby, and the family's maid, Bridget Sullivan. When Andrew returned later that day, his wife was nowhere to be found. Lizzie told him that Abby had received a note and gone to visit a friend. Abby, though, hadn't gone anywhere. At that very moment, she was just upstairs, lying dead in a pool of her own blood. Lizzie helped her father relax on the couch and take a nap. She tried to convince Bridget to leave the house, telling her about a department store sale down the road, but Bridget turned her down. She wasn't feeling well, she told Lizzie. Instead, she went to her bedroom, laid down, and fell asleep. Sullivan's rest was cut short with a fit of screams and shouts. Lizzie was screaming that her father had been murdered. When Sullivan rushed out, she found Andrew dead on the couch, covered in blood. His face was so badly disfigured that he was nearly unrecognizable. In the panic, Lizzie remembers that her stepmother, Abby, should have returned home by now. She asked Sullivan to check for her upstairs. The search, though, was short. Sullivan only made it halfway up the stairs before she found her, hacked to death with a hatchet. Abby had received 19 blows from a hatchet, and her husband had been hit 11 times. In the beginning, Lizzie was not a suspect, but after a friend caught her burning one of her dresses, because it was stained, she was arrested and put on trial for the murders. Ultimately, the court cleared Lizzie of the charges. There wasn't enough concrete evidence against her, the defense provided witnesses that gave Borden an alibi, and they just couldn't believe that the female Sunday school teacher could ever be capable of such crimes. Countless theories have been proposed about what might have happened. Some put the blame on Lizzie Borden, others on Sullivan, and still others say that the girls committed the killings together. But more than 100 years later, the mystery remains unsolved. The tragic unsolved murder of six-year-old John Bennett Ramsey has kept the country's attention for more than two decades. At the time of her death, John Bennett was a well-known beauty queen who lived with her parents, Patricia and John Ramsey, and her nine-year-old brother, Burke, in Boulder, Colorado, on the morning after Christmas, 1996, the Ramsey family's lives were flipped upside down. Patsy called the police in a panic, saying she'd found a ransom note for their daughter. The three-page note demanded that the affluent Ramsey family pay $118,000 for the safe return of John Bennett. But John Bennett hadn't really been kidnapped. Just hours later, her dead body turned up inside the family's own home. After examination of the body, it was discovered that John Bennett had been sexually assaulted and sustained a fracture to her skull. The six-year-old had also been strangled by an apparatus made from one of her mother's paintbrushes. John Bennett's death was ruled a homicide, but mistakes made by police at the crime scene would make it nearly impossible for the killer to be found. The Ramsey family was suspected because of conflicting stories and the fact that the ransom note was written on paper from the house, but ultimately John and Patsy were never indicted for the crime. 
In January 2019, 54-year-old Gary Oliva, a convicted pedophile who is currently serving a 10-year sentence in a Colorado prison for child pornography, in letters to his high school friend admitted that he kidnapped John Bennett Ramsey and killed her by accident. In the late 1920s, Chicago's gang war came to a crescendo with the deaths of seven men. It was a bloody scene that would live on in infamy as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. This grisly mob hit was organized by Al Scarface Capone as a way to get rid of his rival George Bugs Moran once and for all, and cement himself as the top dog of the Chicago mob scene. On the morning of February 14, 1929, four of Capone's men arrived at Moran's warehouse, where he illegally distributed liquor. It's believed that Capone lured Moran to the warehouse by pretending that one of his bootlegging ventures in Canada needed assistance. Five of Moran's men answered Capone's call, accompanied by two car mechanics. They filed into the warehouse, never imagining that Capone's men were lying in wait. As Albert Weinschenk, the last of Moran's men to arrive, exited his Cadillac sedan on the street and made his way into the warehouse, he was accosted by two police officers who forced him inside. Moran's men, believing they were being arrested, lined up against the wall, their backs to the police, all remaining silent so as to not out their boss. The men who'd stopped them, though, weren't police officers at all. They were two of Capone's men in disguise. Once Moran's men were lined up against the wall, two more of Capone's thugs, dressed in plain clothes, stepped inside with submachine guns in their arms. They riddled the men with bullets. Six of them died on the spot, but one lingered on painfully for hours until he slowly bled out on a hospital bed. The plan's original target, Bugs Moran, was never hit. The men had mistaken Weinschenk for Moran, a mistake that saved Bugs Moran's life. Capone was the obvious suspect, but he ended up evading justice. No one was ever brought to trial for the murders. Capone never took credit for the violence and bloodshed during the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The heartbreaking kidnapping and death of 20-month-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. has gone down as one of the most famous murders in American history. On March 1, 1932, Charles Lindbergh Sr., a famous aviator who achieved celebrity status when he flew solo across the Atlantic, heard a noise come from his kitchen that sounded like a wooden crate snapping closed. Just minutes later, the family's nurse discovered that the Lindbergh baby was missing from his crib. Lindbergh Sr. entered his son's room and found a ransom note on the windowsill as well as a broken ladder outside of the window. The note demanded $50,000 in exchange for his son's safe return. Over the next three months, the Lindbergh family, with help from the FBI, desperately searched for the missing baby. Lindbergh Sr. even paid the enormous ransom request to his son's kidnapper. The kidnapper, though, never held up his end of the bargain. Charles Lindbergh Sr. would never see his son alive again. On May 12, 1932, more than two months after the Lindbergh baby first went missing, his tiny body was discovered dead just over a mile from his family's mansion. The boy had been dead for at least two months, it is believed that he died on the day that he was kidnapped. His skull had a hole in it, and his bones had endured several other fractures. Some of the child's body parts had even been chewed off. Animals, it appeared, had gotten to the body first. In the end, the official culprit was identified as Richard Hoffman, a German immigrant with a criminal record. Hoffman was caught after using some of the ransom money. The media attention surrounding the Lindbergh baby's kidnapping and subsequent trial was chaotic. In what was dubbed the trial of the century, Hoffman was found guilty of the crime and sentenced to death. Hoffman died in the electric chair on April 3, 1936. The tragedy of the Lindbergh baby case pushed Congress to pass the Federal Kidnapping Act, which made transporting a kidnapped victim across state lines a federal offense. The law is commonly referred to as the Lindbergh Law.
Actress Sharon Tate's gruesome murder at the hands of the Manson family, while she was more than eight months pregnant, has terrified Hollywood and the rest of America for decades. On the night of August 8, 1969, Tate was home with friends Wojciech Fukowski, coffee heiress Abigail Folger, and celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring. Her husband, director Roman Polanski, was out of the country filming a movie. The couple was renting a glamorous house in the Benedict Canyon neighborhood in Los Angeles at the time, and the house would become the setting for the grisly murders. Infamous cult leader Charles Manson instructed a few of his loyal followers to enter the house and kill everyone inside as gruesomely as you can. Upon entering the property, the cult followers murdered 18-year-old Stephen Parent, who was visiting the estate's caretaker. Then they made their way inside, their sights set on the home's inhabitants. They gathered the four people in the living room and tied them up. Sebring protested, saying that they were treating the eight months pregnant Tate far too roughly. But the only answer he got was a bullet in the chest, a foot to his face, and a knife thrust into his body again and again until he died. Folger and Frakowski got free of their bindings and tried to make a run for it. The escape attempt failed. The killers chased them down and brutally stabbed them dozens of times. Tate was the only one left alive. She pleaded with her captors to let her live, begging for the life of her unborn baby. The Manson family, though, was not moved. They stabbed her to death and used her blood to write the word pig on the home's front door. Manson's motive behind the attack lies in the house itself. The home's previous tenant, music producer Terry Melcher, had earlier denied Manson a recording deal and Manson wanted revenge. By the end of the year, all of the assailants from that night were caught, as was Manson himself. They were sentenced to life in prison. Every request for parole has been denied. The trial following the famous murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman is one of the most highly publicized trials in American history. Brown was the ex-wife of famous football player O.J. Simpson. The pair married in 1985 and had two children, but their relationship was tumultuous and fraught with domestic violence. In 1992, after seven years of marriage, Brown filed for divorce. On June 12, 1994, Nicole and her friend Ronald Goldman were found brutally murdered outside of Nicole's Brentwood home in California. They were both stabbed to death, with Nicole stabbed five times in the neck. According to court testimony, her throat was savagely slashed down to the spinal cord. Nicole's ex-husband was the prime suspect. OJ agreed to turn himself in, but on June 17, he made a run for it with his friend A.C. Cowlings. With a gun to his head, threatening to kill himself, O.J. led police on a chase throughout Los Angeles until he eventually turned himself in. During the trial, piles of evidence were stacked against O.J. for the crime. O.J.'s blood was found at the crime scene, DNA from Nicole and Goldman were found in his car and his home, a pair of O.J.'s gloves were found on Nicole's property, and a bloody footprint at the murder scene matched his shoe. Despite all of the evidence, O.J. was ultimately acquitted of the murders of his ex-wife and Goldman. However, he was later found guilty of the crimes in civil court and was ordered to pay the family's $33.5 million. Dorothy Stratton was just a normal 18-year-old girl working at a Dairy Queen in British Columbia, Canada when she met Paul Snyder. He wooed her with flattering words and told her that she was going to be a star. Snyder put the idea of modeling in Stratton's head and even convinced her to move to Los Angeles to compete in Playboy's 25th anniversary Great Playmate Hunt. Snyder latched himself onto Stratton's rising star and intended to let her make him rich. Hugh Hefner saw the same potential in Stratton and declared that she was going to be the next Marilyn Monroe. Stratton was featured in Playboy as Miss August 1979 and soon after began appearing in films like Buck Rogers, Fantasy Island, and Galaxina. 
Stratton was quickly rising through the Hollywood ranks. The press was already calling her one of the few emerging goddesses of the new decade. Stratton locked down a movie role opposite of Audrey Hepburn. While filming the movie in New York, she began a love affair with the movie's director, Peter Bogdanovich. Snyder began to grow suspicious of Stratton and hired a private investigator to tail his wife. However, once she returned home, she told her husband the truth. She was in love with Bogdanovich and wanted a divorce. Snyder didn't say much, not in front of her, anyway. But his friends reported that after Stratton called it off, he started taking a strange interest in guns and hunting. He bought a 12-gauge shotgun, took a few shooting lessons, and started slipping into conversations. That Playboy had a policy to not print nude pictures of a girl if she got murdered. On August 14, 1980, Stratton visited Snyder at his home to discuss a property settlement she had offered him in the divorce. However, Snyder would take this opportunity where they were alone to make his move. Snyder took a 12-gauge shotgun and shot Stratton through the eye, killing her. He then raped his dead wife's body before turning the shotgun on himself. Stratton was once poised to be one of the next big Hollywood stars, but now her name is instead forever attached to her famous murder. The shooting of fashion icon Johnny Versace in broad daylight in front of his mansion in Miami South Beach still perplexes the public to this day. At the time of his death, Versace was a well-known fashion designer, the man who created the Versace fashion house. He was a superstar in the fashion world, dressing world figures like Princess Diana of Wales. But on the morning of July 15, 1997, Versace was acting strangely. Witnesses say that, moments before his death, he went down to a local cafe, passed the entrance, and then circled back to enter. A hostess later remarked that it seemed as if he thought someone was following him. Versace then bought a newspaper and turned back to his multi-million dollar Mediterranean villa, but he would never make it through the front door. It's unclear exactly how the murder went down. Some witnesses said they saw a young man in his 20s approach Versace from behind and shoot him twice in the head. Others said that the men looked like they knew each other and were struggling over a bag when a gun went off. However it happened, one of the world's most iconic fashion designers was dead. The man who responsible was 27-year-old Andrew Cunanan. He had a reputation in the local gay community as a flashy gold digger who targeted older men to squeeze free trips and expensive items out of them. But many people also called Cunanan unhinged. In the three months before murdering Versace, Cunanan killed four other men across the country and landed himself on the FBI's most wanted list. However, Cunanan would never answer for his crimes or reveal his motive for killing Versace. He then killed himself inside of a Miami houseboat shortly after Versace's murder, leaving behind no note and just a few belongings. The murder of Kitty Genovese, killed outside of her apartment, while many of her own neighbors watched, shocked the public. The young woman was murdered in cold blood, screaming for help, and the neighbors who heard her screams did nothing. Psychologists asked themselves, how could someone see an attack or witness a crime take place and do nothing? They coined the term bystander effect, which now appears in virtually every psychology textbook. Around 2.30 a.m. on March 13, 1964, Kitty Genovese left the bar she worked at in Hollis, Queens and drove home to her apartment in Kew Gardens. She didn't notice the car that pulled out of a nearby parking lot and followed her all the way home. Genovese parked her car at the railroad station and started the roughly 100-foot walk to her apartment building. That was when Winston Mosley attacked. Genovese screamed as he stabbed her. It was 3.15 a.m., but her cries for help were loud enough to wake her neighbors but not one of them came to her aid. One man shouted, leave that girl alone. It was enough to scare Mosley away, but even with him gone, nobody helped Genovese back to her feet. 
For 10 minutes, she crawled across the ground, slowly bleeding out, no one helping her. And then Mosley came back. He stabbed Genevieve several more times, raped her, robbed her, and then ran off. Neighbors didn't call the police until after 4 a.m., nearly an hour after she'd first been attacked. By then, it was too late. Genevieve was already dying. A few witnesses claimed that they called the police, but that their calls weren't given priority. Others simply stated that they assumed someone else would do it instead. Genevieve's neighbor's behavior cost the young woman her life and has since been grimly immortalized in psychology textbooks as well as the history books.